Welcome to Insights Now, a series of conversations designed to shine a light of clarity on the complex world of investing. In our third season, we'll explore investing in a post-pandemic world. After a year and a half of COVID-19 dominating nearly every investment conversation, vaccine rollouts are now well underway and the global economy is recovering at a much faster pace than following past recessions. But as we emerge from the pandemic bunker, the financial landscape looks very different from when we went in. In this season, we take a wide-angle lens to the investment environment to discuss economic trends and long-term themes in markets and how COVID-19 has shaped them. Over the course of a dozen episodes, we'll speak with experts on a variety of topics in an attempt to provide some insight on investing for a post-pandemic world. The first half of 2021 has been characterized by a very strong recovery from the pandemic recession, with a powerful pickup in GDP growth and equity markets reaching new all-time highs. As we head into the second half of the year, the US is expected to continue on its path to full recovery. But several challenges remain. More contagious variants of the coronavirus have emerged. Taxes are likely to increase. And the Fed is mulling tapering its massive bond purchases. Meanwhile, valuations across equity and fixed income markets are looking stretched. The last time we talked about China, in our first season, we focused on the growth of the Chinese economy and markets and how China has become too big to ignore. At that time, back in September 2020, Chinese markets were the strongest outperformers among regional stock markets, and the economy ended a rough coronavirus-stricken 2020 in remarkably good shape, even as the global pandemic continued. Since then, there have certainly been some bumps along the road. In 2021, Chinese equity markets have now lagged global equity markets, and investors have experienced bouts of volatility due to a new regulatory crackdown on businesses and a resurgence of the coronavirus, which has hampered economic growth. In this episode, we're going to take a forward-looking approach on investing in China and ask whether the long-term investment thesis has changed. To discuss these dynamics and put them in the context of China's long-term growth story, I'm very glad to be joined by my colleague, Gabriela Santos, global market strategist here at JP Morgan. So Gabby, welcome back to Insights Now. Thank you, David. Really happy to be back with you here. So to start with, China's zero tolerance policy on the pandemic allowed them to contain the virus much better than most other countries last year. However, given how contagious the Delta variant is and China's slower start to vaccination, China's had to reimpose stringent lockdown measures once again. What are the implications for China of this latest COVID-19 surge and its continued zero tolerance approach to the pandemic? Well, indeed, China's had a very different approach to the pandemic than we have in the West. It has really wanted to tolerate no local cases and minimal amount of fatalities instead of the approach of living with the virus. And that's meant it's really been willing to completely close its borders to outside arrivals and departures. It's been using really intrusive surveillance measures, and it's been imposing strict quarantining and activity restrictions whenever cases flare up. And China is actually quite proud of this approach. Um, it judges it as having had a huge uh, human and economic success while it was in place last year. In terms of human uh, numbers, um, China's official numbers show it had about 66 people infected with COVID per million people compared to 28,000 globally. In terms of fatalities, it's translated to only three per million people compared to 585 globally. And even in economic terms, um, China's approach, of course, was, was very detrimental to growth in the first quarter of last year when it had its first recession since the early 1990s. But then China was able to control those domestic cases and it went back to normal life domestically and staged a full V-shaped recovery. 
So this led to just a huge amount of pride domestically uh, compared to the rest of the world. So I think part of why it's continuing to do this approach this year is because of the marketing push and the local pride that people feel. And it is also partly related to this more contagious Delta variant meeting a population that is more and more vaccinated, but with a vaccine that has a lower efficacy rate than the vaccines we're using in the West. So I think China's approach will remain this way until it's reached a higher percentage of its population that's inoculated. And then it can really reopen activity without restrictions, without leading to higher hospitalizations and deaths. In terms of when that is, the last time China updated its um, uh, release of the total percentage of the population inoculated was August 26th, and it showed about 62% fully vaccinated. Um, It aims to get to 80% by the end of the year, so it might take us until early next year for China to change its approach. This continues to have some marginal impact on short-term growth wherever the the restrictions are imposed. Um, But ultimately, we do see China moving on from this, like the rest of the world, at some point in 2022. But if we go beyond that, sort of the, the cyclical bounce coming out of COVID, and admittedly, a lot of that occurred last year rather than this year in China. But if you go beyond that sort of cyclical story, what's China's focus on growth for the next five to 10 years? And and what are, areas, what are the areas of priority versus those areas that they're trying to de-emphasize? And I think this is such an important question because, of course, pandemic is top of mind right now. But really for Chinese markets, it's never about the, the economic cycle. It's much more about the long-term trends uh, and related reforms and regulatory pushes. So zooming out from the pandemic, China today uh, has that second largest economy in the world. Uh, It has a GDP per capita of about $10,000, which is middle income status. And it claims to have eradicated extreme poverty. So it's come a long way. And it's done that by really focusing on very rapid growth rates for 20 years. But what about going forward? And China is helpful because they always lay out their roadmap in their five-year plans. And we're in the 14th five-year plan that covers 2021 through 2025. And what we hear from from them is that the next stage of development is less about quantity and more about quality of growth. First, that means in terms of quality of growth drivers, it wants to focus more on domestic instead of external demand, more on consumption instead of investment more on services instead of manufacturing. It's also a lot more focused on upgrading the kind of value add of its industry. So less about low cost uh, textiles, for example, and more about uh, really investing in in producing cutting edge technology. Um, And China has a clear goal of increasing R&D spending more than overall GDP growth to help it continue to innovate. I think the last thing about this concept of quality of life that's highlighted in the five-year plan, it's also about the quality of life of its people. (laughs) So it's much more focused on how people feel day to day. And and here comes in the concept of ensuring common prosperity or reducing inequality and also an environmental protection, which is focused on reducing uh, pollution and, and adverse health effects. 
And areas that are de-emphasized are some of those old economy drivers uh, of the economy, like real estate and infrastructure. And it's also the kind of industries that threaten uh, the quality of life, especially traditional energy and bloated SOEs and just overall indebtedness level. So it's, it's a very big mind shift in terms of how China judges its own success going forward. And, and really sort of a related subject in terms of quality of life and lifestyles has to do with China's sort of chronic decline in its birth rate. Um, so China has seen years of declining birth rates, similar to other major economies. But given the importance of that for potential economic growth in the long run, and they do focus on the long run, how are they addressing this issue of uh, a, a low birth rate and its impact on slowing labor force growth. Yeah, and, and we do tend to think about long-term growth as just can evenly split it in into labor force growth and and productivity growth. Um, in terms of the labor force in China, it's it's actually not its strong suit. Uh, and and here China released a few months ago its um, new census report. Uh, which did show um, a fifth year of declining birth rates. It also showed an increase in the share of the population that's over age 65. And actually, the average age in China is 38.8. It's the same as the U.S. So it leads to these concerns about China turning old before it turns rich. And China's very much aware of this. It knows that demographics, it's, it's not its, its strong suit. Maybe it can do some things at the margin to boost the birth rate, like removing restrictions on uh, children per couple or lowering the costs uh, of having children. Maybe it can continue to focus on urbanizing the labor force, but that's not going to get it to a very interesting long-term growth rate. So China's really focused on that other bucket of productivity. And it wants to keep its productivity high, um, high in, in terms of going forward, similar to what it's been for a few decades, which is about an average of 2.7% contribution from productivity. So that's why China is so focused on innovation uh, as its future drivers of growth. That's what, for example, South Korea did and enabled it to become a rich country over time. And here, just to define what innovation means, it's not social media, it's not app companies. What China's really focused on supporting and boosting, it's hard tech. It's things like 5G and artificial intelligence and semiconductors, quantum computing, and cloud software. That's really what it sees as its road to prosperity. China does, of course, have a lot of potentially conflicting goals. So apart from all of the goals that you talked about, uh, President Xi has made some sweeping remarks about targeting inequality. Um, I mean, is this a genuine goal that is truly aligned with China's long-term plans? And what type of policies, if it is, do you expect the party to implement to try to achieve this? Yeah, this has been very top of mind this this year, especially over the past few months. But it's actually been in the five-year plan for a while, this idea of ensuring common prosperity, which is very related to reducing inequality. And one thing that maybe uh, not everyone's aware of is that we talked about all the progress China has done over the last 20 years, but it's actually a very unequal society. When you look at, for example, measures of inequality like the Gini coefficient, 
it has higher levels of inequality than the U.S. does. And the population is starting to notice. <laughs> so there's a certain sense of urgency from the Chinese Communist Party to deal with this issue for social stability and political survival. And really what it aims to do is um, really have companies focus not just on profit goals, but also on some of these social goals. And it's really about promoting certain types of regulations that get companies to focus on really improving the way it treats customers, the way it treats workers, the way it treats smaller businesses, all with the goal of trying to improve the quality of life. And ultimately, it's, a, it's also about reducing the cost of living for people. And so certain sectors are under particular attention here, like education, healthcare, and property. So it's, it's really not about... Um, you know, eliminating private capital or private industry, but it is about focusing a bit more on social goals. And ultimately, the success will be judged in China by having less billionaires, more of a middle class going forward. Well, it, it almost seems like a, a Chinese version of a real focus in ESG, um, if you think about it. Um, but of course... It, a, a big focus on the S, well, <laughs> which um, is new for China, actually. Absolutely. Um, so China's regulatory crackdown is weighing on stock market sentiment. It's caused some deep stock market sell-offs this year in in tech, in gaming, in the for-profit education sector. What what is happening, and and what are China's ultimate goals when it comes to these new regulations? So it's really started back in December of last year, and we've had nine months at this point of of regulations coming out almost every single day in China and really hitting this fever pitch over the summer. And really the way to think about it is, is not as individual actions, new things that come up every day. They're really pieces of a much bigger mosaic for China. And it is all aligned with these long-term plans that we're discussing. Um, so the regulations mostly have to do with the internet sector um, and they have to do with those long-term social goals. So it's guardrails around these super powerful internet companies that force them to provide some more protection to their customers, workers, and business partners. And they're actually all issues that we're dealing with in the West, right? How do you combat some of the monopolies or monopolistic behavior that some of these companies have? How do you protect their gig workers, especially? How do you boost competition for small and medium-sized companies? How do you protect data? They're all very related issues to discussions we're having around the world. It's just that they have a, a sense of urgency in China and also that they're able to, when they decide to, change regulations overnight. Whereas in the U.S., in Europe, it takes a long time to discuss these regulations um, through Congress and through regulatory agencies. I think one of the things that China is, is working to clarify is that these guardrails are really not meant to destroy these companies or their business models. Um, they're really just aimed to help those companies ultimately balance their economic and social goals more, and they should be able to be absorbed by these companies. There are some exceptions to this rule, um, such as what happened with the for-profit education sector, uh, where just largely made the sector uninvestable. 
Um, but there are few exceptions to the rule there. Perhaps others under the crosshair would be things like residential real estate uh, or generic drugs. Otherwise, it's much more uh, about guardrails and doesn't change the ultimate thesis of China. It'll just take some confidence, uh, some time, of course, to rebuild confidence for investors. But we've seen this happen before. China has had other regulatory cycles. It tends to happen every three years or so, 2018, 2015, 26 months out after the regulatory cycle is over, Chinese markets tend to be up about 20%. But it's still a lot of policy and a lot of regulation. And is this an environment in which business and innovation can actually thrive? And if it, if it hampers innovation, what does this mean for the outlook for economic growth in China? And I think this is the big experiment that China's embarking on. Can it have innovation at the same time that it also focuses on social goals? And those are, I think, debates that we're having around the world, honestly, but China's actually implementing and we'll start to see the effects sooner than we will in other parts of the world. Um I think China is making the gamble that it can have both things at the same time. And I do think it ultimately believes that some of the regulations could even boost innovation by boosting competition and allowing um, small, medium-sized businesses to innovate and actually compete in the marketplace. Um, I think what will be key, though, in order to continue seeing entrepreneurs form new companies, invest their time and effort uh, into innovating. I think China does need to continue this push of clarifying that it still does see a role for private business and private capital in this broader model they have of socialism with Chinese characteristics. So there's a little bit more effort here in, in terms of the message coming from regulators. So Looking a little bit, you know, broadening our lens a little bit and looking overseas, um, how has the U.S.-China relationship changed under the new Biden administration? You know, I think it, it hasn't actually changed all that much in the sense that the Biden administration has the same characterization of China that the Trump administration initiated, which is a view of China as the U.S.'s main strategic competitor. And this is a defining feature of, of really the next generation. What I think has changed is that that competition where it takes place is more targeted under the Biden administration. So it's less about competing in all economic realms, and it's more about concentrating the competition and cutting edge technology. So exactly the areas that China wants to focus on for its long term growth, and it feels this urgency to be self-sufficient is exactly where We'll continue to see restrictions on exports and investment. So this includes things like 5G, semiconductors, artificial intelligence. There's also some room, I think, um, similar in the Biden administration for some verbal uh, conflict. And that's around issues of human rights and national security. So we will continue to see some targeted sanctions of individuals or restrictions in activity of certain areas when they have to deal with both of these issues. Lastly, in addition to, well, competition, conflict, there is some room for cooperation. Uh, and I think under the Biden administration, the cooperation's really focused on issues around climate change, which is a focus of China 
um, really to uh, not just protect the environment, but improve uh, the daily life of its people. I think for the first six months, the Biden administration, you know, was focused on doing a review of its approach to China, didn't communicate too much about it. But we'll hear more and more about its plans for China over the next few months. Um, it wants to keep all these issues separately. China wants to lump them together. So that's really the main sticking point. But as investors, I think we have to really invest through it. And just having a little bit more visibility of the framework, that's already a huge improvement from where we stood in 2017 and 2018. And you know, thinking about those tensions, uh, obviously one area is Taiwan. How far do you think China is willing to ramp up political and military pressure on Taiwan? Does this have the potential to threaten U.S.-China uh, relationship? So from China's perspective, it sees Taiwan as part of one China. It's all one and the same. And this is a very hard line for China. So verbally, it will not compromise or negotiate this position. And I think what we've seen is China has gained economic power. It's had more confidence and willingness to stake its own position in the ground and to not budge in what it sees as its red lines. So it's become more nationalistic in that sense. In terms of actually exerting military pressure in Taiwan and, and us you know, being involved in a hot war there, that seems unlikely over the next few years, perhaps an issue for later on. And the reason we say it's unlikely is because it actually would be against China's own national interest to do so at the moment because of its economic links to Taiwan. It's still extremely dependent on it uh, for its supply of semiconductors. China's not quite there yet in terms of developing the know-how uh, for that uh, most, most um, important part of developing semiconductors, which is around the intellectual property. So it's not there yet. It can only supply 15 to 20 percent of the semis it needs. So be against its own interests to actually initiate a conflict with Taiwan, unless it's, of course, inadvertently or advertently uh, provoked to do so. And then finally, just turning to markets, while Chinese equity markets have lagged this year, Chinese fixed income markets are actually the best performing uh, global uh, markets uh, globally. How does this underscore China's place in portfolios? particularly considering lackluster U.S. fixed income returns? Yeah, so in terms of Chinese equity markets, they have lagged the rest of the world. They're down about 13%. Um, so it's kind of highlighting the negative side of investing in Chinese equities, which is higher volatility than we see in other markets, about double U.S. equity volatility. We do still believe in the investment case in Chinese equities, though. They can offer higher returns to investors. They're also uncorrelated to other markets, as we're seeing this year. But this is really interesting to also think about the opportunities of investing in Chinese fixed income. And China is the second largest equity and bond market in the world. And Chinese fixed income is having a great year. It's up 3.5% in local currency, 5% in dollar terms, which is much better than the down year that the U.S. Barclays Ag is having. I think it just highlights how it's not just Chinese equities that are uncorrelated to other markets, but also Chinese bonds. And that's because China has its own economic and policy cycle. So it, it really beats uh, to its own drum here. The last thing about Chinese fixed income 
is that it does offer a yield pickup of about 160 basis points versus U.S. Treasury. So in a world hard to find diversification, income, and return, Chinese markets can offer really all three. It's just about investing in China the right way, which for us involves going to local markets, uh, as well as having active management that can really incorporate um, a lot of the ESG trends that are very, very quickly changing in China. Well, thank you. Thank you for joining us, Gabby. And thank you all for listening. Thank you so much, David. Please tune into our next episode, where I'll be joined by portfolio manager Manish Goyal for a discussion on the long-term growth opportunities in technology and innovation as we look past the pandemic. Until then, I invite you to download the JP Morgan Insights app for iPhone and iPad, which is another way to access this podcast and all of our timely insights on the markets and economy at your fingertips. This content is intended for information only based on assumptions in current market conditions and are subject to change. No warranty of accuracy is given. This content does not contain sufficient information to support investment decisions. It is not to be construed as research, legal, regulatory, tax, accounting, or investment advice. Investments involve risks. Investors should seek professional advice or make an independent evaluation before investing. The value of investments and the income from them may fluctuate, including loss of capital. Past performance and yield are not indicative of current or future results. Forecasts and estimates may or may not come to pass.